Happy Valentine's Day. I wore red. You wore red. Red, red, red. The rest of you can leave. Oh, you can stay. <laughs> this is the message for the, just those. <laughs> Carrie asked me to speak today, mainly because he'd be out of town and he couldn't find anybody else that would volunteer. <laughs> and I said, sure, no problem. And he said, he said what are you going to speak on? I said, it's Valentine's Day, Carrie. I, do I have a choice? <laughs> This is not a biblical holiday, by the way, <laughs> unless you're Catholic, I guess. <laughs> Love is definitely a holiday every day, and that's really the message. The first time I ever gave a sermon, out of, when I first came out of seminary, the message was love. And I was scared to death to give it. So here's a guy that's shaking in his boots, speaking to a couple hundred people, and I'm talking about love. And they thought I was there to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just really crazy. But my mom and dad came, first time they'd ever been in a church, so that was kind of fun. And we had a long talk afterwards. <laughs> We're going to look at that today from a couple of different uh, avenues. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can, we can focus on love, but we should be focusing on that every day. And the message that you gave today to me will hopefully outline that. Lord, bless every life that is here. Open ears, open hearts, that your word may go forward in Jesus' name. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you. If not, it'll be on the, on the overheads to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, verses that should be deeply etched in the mind of every Christian. I'm going to relax today so I don't threaten everybody. Everybody, Somebody said that I was very threatening up here last time I spoke, so just going to sit here and just chill. <laughs> that's right, I'm a teddy bear, that's right. <laughs> Listen to uh, Galatians 5, through 26. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's what it says. God's Word says that. And we've heard this all of our Christian lives. But what does it really mean? We've got to put some legs on that. Sometimes I think we need some clarification of love. And what better day than Valentine's Day? In 1 John, we are told that God is love. 1 John. We're going to look in the both, both the books, 1 John and James today, so you can put markers in there. You can go back and forth as I go. God is love. In other words, 
true love is from God. Now, we know that God is a triune being, meaning three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if God is love, it doesn't exist apart from him. We know that God is one. Therefore, we can't think of God the Father without thinking of love. We can't think of God the Son without thinking of love. We can't think of the Spirit without thinking of love. They are all consistent. There is no separation. God doesn't send love. He doesn't manufacture it. He is love. He is many other things, but he is first and foremost love. I know that appears to be a very simple statement, but I'm convinced that only an extremely small percentage of believers have really come to grips with this truth. As we see, especially as I see the condition of the church worldwide and the state of the average believer, it's easy to become discouraged. We look for discipleship. We look for those who are are laboring together in unity, in prayer, in power. And what do we see? Quarrels, divisions, complacency, and the worst of all, mediocrity. We serve the God of the universe, the creator of all there is and ever will be. And we see mediocrity. I was told once a long time ago by my father, make a difference in the world. And he said to me, just remember one thing, a difference that makes no difference is no difference. Make a difference in the world. (laughs) Many talk about the secret, quote unquote, the secret, as if somehow we've missed some secret. And they, they feel that that's the, why, that's the why the church is the way it is. We, we missed out on some secret. They think that perhaps what's needed is a new book to be written by some brilliant guy that will somehow reveal the secret and bring deliverance and restoration to the church nationwide, worldwide. So off they run to buy this book or that book on what being a true Christian is all about. When everything is in this book, <laughs> this, if you're a pilot, this is how you fly. These are the instruments. You fly by instruments. <laughs> you understand that, pilots. My answer to this type of thinking, though, is that it seems to me that it wouldn't be very fair for God to keep a secret about the most basic ingredient of the Christian life and its effectiveness. And frankly, I don't believe it is a secret. There is, I believe, a basic ingredient that is largely lacking in Christianity today. And the lack of it is the source of most of our problems. It's the cancer which is eating away at the church, and it's no secret In fact, it's so obvious that it's written on almost every page of the New Testament. And yet, because the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, according to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, and because we are so bent on our own ways, 
we don't see, or maybe seeing we don't believe, that the basic message of the New Testament is love. It's love. It was worked out for our vision by Jesus. It's my absolute conviction that most of us miss the most obvious and the most repeated message, even while laying great emphasis on sound theological doctrine. That's important, but that begets the question, what is sound doctrine? We have long discussions on the second coming, on the atoning work of Christ, on the cross, on the church, on the Holy Spirit, on eternal security, so many other subjects. But what about love and humility and brokenness? This we don't hear about much. These usually go into a separate category, but I want to tell you that if your doctrine doesn't include love and humility and brokenness, then your doctrine is not sound. So doctrine can't be separated from our daily lives if we call ourselves Christ followers. That's my message. I don't see Jesus Christ as a schizophrenic dual personality, partly doctrine and partly moral, trying to bring two separate realms of truth into existence, into our minds. He was not, on the one hand, trying to teach us what we call doctrine, and on the other hand, trying to make us morally sound. It's completely wrong to think of doctrine as being apart from our everyday life. However, I've heard people, I've heard people so many times that it, it just, it's like nails on a chalkboard, say that they know a good evangelical Christian, they always say evangelical first, <laughs> he has good sound doctrine, they say, but he doesn't have much love for others. And he's not very humble, but he's very sound doctrinally. And I go, ah, he's not sound doctrinally if he doesn't love the brethren and the sisterin. <laughs> Look at 1 John 4, 8. It says, the one who does not love does not know God. 1 John 4, 8. There's no sounder doctrine than love. And apart from love, there is no sound doctrine. This is the basis of all Bible doctrine. You take away the base, the foundation, and everything else collapses. Look at James chapter 3, and we'll park there for a while. James chapter 3. We'll look at some verses that have deeply spoken to my heart. Verse 13. Who among you is wise? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. As an example of what I'm talking about here, I want to share a short story with you that happened to me at UCLA. When I first got out of Bible school and seminary, I used to go to UCLA, USC, and Berkeley and witness on the campuses to people. We'd practice, practice what we'd learned. And we were so smart. <laughs> We had so much theological stuff in us. It was oozing out of every hole. And we knew that no one could argue with us. Well, I watched a dear brother of mine, Bobby, and he was witnessing to an Orthodox Jew. Now, most of you know that I come from a Jewish background. And I found my Messiah. 
I got to have a long talk when I go to Israel next time with those people. <laughs> but I found him and I came to Christ. Well, I was watching him argue with this Orthodox Jew, you know, the guys that are all in black with the hats and the long curly sideburns. I wish I could do that. <laughs> but <laughs> he was losing. He was losing bad because this guy knew the Bible better than Bobby did. <laughs> and I walked over to him because I had just gotten fed up with it. And I looked at this Orthodox rabbinical student, I would call him. And I looked at Bobby. I said, Bobby, hold on. This is not going anywhere. Can I just butt in? I said, looked at the Jewish fellow and I said, peace, brother. Shalom. You're a lanceman, which in Yiddish means you're a brother in, in, in the Jewish faith. I said, I want to tell you, there's only one thing you got to know. Yeshua, Jesus, that the church understands, is the Messiah that you guys have been looking for. You need to believe that. You need to accept that. And if you do, your destination is heaven. If not, you're going to hell. Peace. <laughs> and I walk away. Well, my mentor, the guy that led me to the Lord, he was watching this whole thing. And he walked up to me, put his arm around me as we were walking, and he said to me, kind of what I've been saying so far in this message, Mikey, that was some really good theology. Not a lot of love there. <laughs> he says, but the theology was impeccable. <laughs> and I learned a lesson. <laughs> you just don't do it that way. <laughs> oh, I thought I'd share that with you. In other words, God says to the man who has the correct theory and who knows what the Bible teaches, all right, let's see it lived out in your life before you try to bring it to somebody else. First, above everything else, let's see it lived out. If a man is truly wise, then he is truly gentle or meek, as some translations have it. But don't misunderstand that. Meek does not mean weak. Reading on in James, we find that certain factors disqualify a person from this wisdom. In verse 14, it states, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. I pray before I ever get up to speak that I would completely disappear and only God's words would be truth that you would hear. I don't want you to hear me. I want you to hear God today, okay? When we claim to be sound in doctrine and to have New Testament truth, and yet our lives are not filled with gentleness, but rather with bitterness or arrogance, we are actually lying against that truth. And the evidence is in our own lives. Look at the next verse. Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. Let me give you an example from my days as a youth pastor, my first job in the church. <laughs> one of the kids made a mistake in something that we don't need to elaborate on here, but one of his fellow students knew that he was in the wrong for what he had done. And very quickly, he confronted him. 
and stated that what he did was wrong. He said that you shouldn't have done that or it. And the other brother, in a bit of excitement, said, well, I was told to do it that way. So the first, a little more excitedly, said, well, I know it's not right. This is what you should have done. And soon enough, they were in a full-scale argument. And I I had to step in because they were ready to come to blows. (laughs) Later on, I talked to the one who claimed to be right in confronting his brother. And I said to him, do you feel that you were right in that situation? Absolutely, he said. (laughs) I was right, and everybody else here knows I was right. So he'd already managed to convince everybody that he was right. Then I asked him, tell me then, when you spoke to him, were you in the flesh or in the spirit? This is what I had been teaching just that last week. He stopped at that and he thought for a minute and he said, well, I don't suppose that I was really what you would call being in the spirit. (laughs) I said, well, then you were in the flesh. Can we agree on that? He was a bit hesitant, but said, all right, I admit that I was in the flesh, but I was right. (laughs) I said, dear brother, doesn't the word of God say that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God? (laughs) Doesn't it also say that those who are in the flesh cannot please God? He wasn't right, not the way I think. The way I believe Christ thought. The way I believe the New Testament teaches, he was absolutely wrong because truth never comes without moral quality. And you cannot tell the truth without love. You may be right and be wrong at the same time in how you approach it. That's what the Bible says here. This wisdom that doesn't come with meekness and gentleness and love is not wisdom. It's demonic. Some of the most horrible and unbelievable situations come up within Christianity among those who have lip truth but do not live the truth. The next verse, verse 16, says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Our God is a God of order, not disorder. How many times have we seen this? The moment that envy creeps into the picture, no matter how much orthodoxy or doctrine there is, or how much so-called truth is floating around, the result will be just what is described here. Disorder or confusion, and every evil work follows close behind. Verse 17, next. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, then gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. God's wisdom is first always pure, then it's peaceable. I liken that also to the phrase, the Prince of Peace. Prince comes first. Okay? You want to know when we're going to have peace on this earth? When the Prince comes. Until then, there will be conflict. A wise man once said, when you know that you are not in the spirit, you know you are a little upset, then don't open your mouth. (laughs) I have a foot-shaped mouth because I usually take one foot out to put the other one in because I speak so fast. 
I, I like the way he puts it, though. At that moment, literally force yourself back into the will of God to be peaceable and loving. How many times have you hurt someone because you spoke too soon? Don't let everybody know. I know how many times I could have kicked myself because I didn't wait a little longer before I spoke. Regardless of whether or not I was right, the point was to look to God for the gentle wisdom that is from above. The Bible says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. You don't belong to yourself anymore if you've come to Christ. You don't. You have to live according to what God says is true about you. And Paul said it's so good in Romans in three or four chapters, but he made it later in one verse. How many know what that verse is? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is where we are. That's our position in Christ. There's two competing doctrines. Positional truth, conditional truth. Positional truth says that we are in Christ. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Completely forgiven of all our sins today, yesterday, and guess what? Tomorrow. Now, don't be thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow now because you're going to say, well, I'm already forgiven. Can I do that? <laughs> no, 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 no. First John 1, 9 will cover that. We'll talk about that at another time. But, but condition, our position is perfect. Our condition is somewhat less. That's the real world that we're in. Someday our position and condition will match. And all of our life as believers in Christ is to try to make that condition look like what God says is true about us. God's wisdom is first pure, and then it's peaceable. The Bible says, like I said, the wisdom from above, though, uh, is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. Gentle. Wow. That certainly condemns me, <laughs> that word gentle. As I... As I look back on my own experience in the Christian life, I recognize this shortcoming, though. Certainly, I didn't have a shortage of passion for witnessing. But all the passion without love will not win souls for Christ. So let's see what God says to us through 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, I want to give you a homework assignment for the rest of your life. Look in the Bible. Look in the New Testament. Read it and look for that phrase, one another. Do a study on just that phrase, and you will understand what the Christian life is really all about. One another powerful. When I came to Christ, I didn't know anything about that. I came from a uh, pretty wild background. 
and we won't focus on that. But when I first came, I didn't know how to express myself. And I was just learning. I had never grown up in the church what this was all about. So I started to write my thoughts. And I wrote a lot of poetry, which is something I never thought me and poetry would get along. (laughs) But I did. And I wrote one that to this day sticks with me. And I want to share it with you. It's real short. It's called The Silent Streets of Emptiness. I'm going to mention a word here, but it's referring to dogs, okay? So you'll understand what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm not referring to, to women or any sex or any of that kind of stuff, but just listen and you'll understand it in its context. It's called The Silent Streets of Emptiness. And this is where I was after I came to Christ from the background that I had, which was eagle evil and and ugly. I am a poor man in a land of untold riches, and I spend each day fighting beasts and bitches. My body is sore, my mind's a mess, and all I need is a rest. The silent streets of emptiness, emptiness yawn before me in their vastness, and I refuse to be beaten at this game called life, even when I see the signs of hunger and strife, and they're all around, and they're trying to pull me down, and I must fight to stay alive and not drown. Oh, God, I need sleep. And maybe just a week. Won't someone lend a hand to this all-but-beaten man? Won't someone say, hi, how are you on this fine and lovely day? I have so much love to give. But without Christ, there's no reason to live. That was it. Uh, That was where I was. It's okay. He gave that to me. What's our message as Christians then? Sometimes it seems that our primary message is believe, believe, believe. We run around going, believe. We're in people's faces. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and afterwards everything will be cool. Everything will be cool. It doesn't work out that way. Many people in the church today think this way, though. When I read Believe in the New Testament, I find something that hits me like a sledgehammer. When a man really, really believes in Jesus Christ, it's as though a revolution took place in his life, in their innermost being, and then it becomes operational in their life. It's a revolution of love. I didn't know how to love until I came to Christ. I didn't even know I had any love until I came to Christ. You cannot separate the word believe in its biblical context from the word love. Don't even try. It just doesn't work. Furthermore, we can't have fellowship without God, with God without having fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We cannot love God without first loving each other. There are people that say, oh, I don't want to go to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. So they stay home. and They they think they're good, solid Christians. No, they're not. They're missing out at best. And at worst, they're deceived. Look at 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who 
does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. The prevailing idea today is that if we love God enough, we'll eventually love our brother. (laughs) The Bible tells us that a Christian is at all times indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The same Holy Spirit, by the way, that indwelt Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth and enabled him to do the things and say the things that he said. You and I have that same help. And so he has all the potential for this tremendous ability to love, even an ability to love the unlovely. The Holy Spirit is there, patiently waiting to take position of us, any man, any woman, and make them loving. He's just waiting to move that person to volunteer for the children's ministry, for the cleanup crew, for the road crew, for the washing of the toilets in the church. The Holy Spirit is waiting to make us ready to take the low road and jump ahead of our brother in the dirty task, the thankless task. But do you know what happens most of the time? There's a thing called pride. Our pride, our stubbornness, our egocentric living quench the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We even sign our letters, though, love in Christ. (laughs) Do we mean that? (laughs) And we think, well, that's another one out of the way. But that's not the way we love ourselves, is it? Doesn't the Bible say to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Yeah, it does. Perhaps we can understand love better if we use the word care. In fact, you've been caring for yourself all day so far. Tell me if I'm wrong. Ever since this morning when you woke up and your self-love went right into action. You had a shower or a bath. You guys probably shaved. I hope so. And, and uh, brushed your teeth. I really hope you did that. As well as put on some sort of skin conditioner, aftershave, whatever. Then you put on, I put it up here too. Then you put on a proper amount of clothes to keep you warm. Although this is Southern California. What the heck? Come in bathing suits. I don't care. <laughs> Shortly after getting out of bed, you probably had a little pain in your stomach. Very slight, but enough to get your attention. And immediately you started toward the coffee pot, the orange juice, or the bread drawer. I had to run to get here, so I went for the donuts. (laughs) In other words, (laughs) it's better anyway. (laughs) Be truthful, it's better. In other words, you're trying to take care of yourself automatically. It's something you don't think about care. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Neither does Jesus. It's wonderful that Jesus knows all about us, isn't it? If humanity could only grasp this truth, we could burn all the psychology books that were ever written in a large trash bin. I have a very good friend, my best friend, outside of my wife, who was my roommate in seminary. And he's a psychologist, clinical psychologist. He lives in South Carolina. And he, he said, and I remember this, this was almost 50 years ago. He said that if we took all the teaching and wisdom from all the psychology books of our day and put all that supposed wisdom from all those brilliant minds and writers in one big massive data bank, what we would have compiled there would be far inferior to the Sermon on the Mount. 
That's the psychologist that you want to send people to. (laughs) There's a guy that knows where truth is. I know that I don't express myself well at times. Sometimes I'm a little overzealous. But I just pray that the Spirit of God will show you what this type of love really is, what it means to obey the second commandment of Jesus Christ daily from the time you get up in the morning until you go to bed at night. Only this will make an impact on such a materialistic age as the one we live in today. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have sound doctrine. Is that what he said? I didn't think so. If you have love for one another. Oh, see, you guys got cheat sheets. <laughs> you have love for one another. I made it easy on you. You could pass this test. <laughs> Not if you have sound doctrine and zeal or passion. No. They'll know you if you have love for one another. This is the greatest challenge in the world. It's also the greatest challenge in the word of God. To love each other as Christ loved us. That's a sacrificial love. And to love each other as we love ourselves. To care for our brothers and sisters as we care for ourselves. We need to see where we are before God. John, 1 John chapter 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren and the sisters. He who does not love abides in death. The Bible tells us that if you want a life of love, if you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, if you want to join that remnant of people who are fed up with empty words and hypocrisy, if you want reality and love in your life, then you will have it. The Word of God says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This world in which we live is a sick world. There are some in this room that can actually tell you they've witnessed it. It's a world of misery and tragedy such as most of us cannot begin to imagine. We are blessed to be in America with all its problems. You have no idea. How blessed you are. However, millions are sleeping on pavements, some on dirt, some are starving to death, knowing nothing of the love of God for them. Look again at 1 John 3.17. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The verse acts like a punctuation mark after all we've talked about this morning. As I look around in this audience this morning, I recognize many here that I know answer this call every time it goes out. Your faithfulness in giving to the mission field and to all those locally that are in need is to be commended. So may the God of love and mercy bless you and keep you all the days of your life. Now, as I get ready to close here, and the kids are coming back, I uh, will share another poem with you. And I'd like you to receive this poem as if it's a prayer. So bow your heads and listen.
called Only Then Shall I Know. When time has passed away and eternity has begun, and I stand before the throne of God, the Almighty One. When this mortal body has put on immortality, only then shall I know how much my Lord has done for me. When earth is no more and the new creation's taken place, and I enter heaven's glory by God's amazing grace, when the wonderful face of my Lord Jesus Christ I see, only then shall I know how much my Lord has done for me. When I'm standing there clothed in righteousness, not my own, worshiping with all the angels gathered around his throne, when I sing with unnumbered saints in wondrous harmony, only then shall I know how much my Lord has done for me. Then my heart and soul in all their strength will proclaim the inconceivable glory of my Savior's holy name. And there gathered with saints and angels throughout eternity, I shall sing of how much my Lord Jesus has done for me.